I'm Alex Del Sordo with the Rowers Choice Network, and I am doing season three, episode three. I still can't believe to this day that we've gotten this far in these podcast interviews. And the only reason you're watching this is because you see the name on the podcast. It's Kevin Sauer, head coach, program director, whatever you want to call it, of UVA. Now, I have been following this guy's career ever since I was rowing, really in college and in high school. Uh, senior year, because at that time, UVA was one of the fastest programs. Uh, the, the attributes are, we're going to be talking about that this entire time. We're going to be getting into his background of coaching, his philosophy on coaching, and maybe some interest, interesting stories along his way. Uh, Kevin, thank you for being here today, man. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. So Kevin, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to age you here. You've been doing this for 26 years, 27 years as the coach of UVA. Is that, is that, yeah, you're shaking your head, yes. Actually, 33. <laughs> okay, so now I'm 35 years old. So you just aged yourself big time there. Um, I know you started, I don't know when you started rowing, but you rode for Purdue. Mm -hmm. Tell the audience, when did you pick up that, that oar the first time? Like, when did you start rowing? Yeah, so uh, I went to Purdue to play football, actually. Um, got hurt. And somebody said, you should, you should row. And so like October, late October of my freshman year, uh, I picked up rowing, didn't know anything about it and um, started rowing. And like, I didn't anything endurance wise, nothing like football, baseball, that kind of stuff. So I like, when they said, go for a run, I go a run. Like, what are you talking about? How far a run are you talking about? You know? And they're going like, Oh, we're going for five miles. And I'm going like, I'm good for five yards. Okay. That's about it. Anyway. So so I got started in rowing and um, I started rowing at Purdue as a novice in that first year. It's like everybody else if they started in college and uh, then got picked up actually by the coach on our first long run of the winter and felt so embarrassed. I sat next to him in the, in the front seat and just kept looking over going like, you know, like this because I couldn't finish the run. So he had to pick me up. And I vowed then, I said, that'll never happen again. And I went from like the worst runner <laughs> um, and just ran and ran and ran and ran the rest of that spring and all summer. And I came back like the second fastest runner on the team, you know? So I just said like, that's not going to happen. So it just, I got a kind of a crazy start in it, but then just kind of got into it and loved it and uh, finished out my career at Purdue. I, I rode in the Pan American Games team in 75 and then went back to Purdue to finish my senior year. And then I rode in Philly in summer 77 um, and rode in the uh, world championships in the pair with the floating leg press. Um, and um, I tried uh, a few other times, but things didn't work out. I trained all the way through the 84 Olympic trials um, uh, and didn't make it after that, but I kept trying. Um, but I started coaching um, right after uh, I graduated Purdue in 76. I went back to grad school to be a teacher and um, novice women first year, novice men the second year of grad school, and then they asked me to be the head coach. And I go, okay, I was going to be a teacher, right? And um, they said, you'd be the head coach of Purdue. And I said, how much does that pay again? And they go, $4,000. And I go, oh, well, for sure then, you know? Um, but uh, I just supported my coaching habit. I said, I'll do it. And uh, Buddy and I built some houses on the side. We did some different things, you know, hog barns, houses, um, things like that. I worked at a shoe store for a while, did all sorts of crazy stuff. I worked, I worked at a YMCA camp my last year there before I went to Yale, uh, building cabins and fixing up stuff and stuff like that. Um, just all the different things I could do to, to support my family um, 
my growing family at the time. And um, then I got a call from, and we, we beat Wisconsin in 81 and 82 um, at the Midwest Championships uh, with no budget and, and an underpaid coach and all that kind of stuff, just working hard. And then uh, Tony Johnson called and said, hey, you want to coach a freshman at Yale? And that was in uh, the spring of 82, uh, summer of 82, after Yale had beaten Washington and Cincinnati um, for the national championship. And I said, yeah, is that, a, is that all I got to do? And he goes, uh, yeah, that's all you got to do. It's a full-time job. <laughs> Nothing on the side. Nope, nope. So moved moved everybody, and we went to Yale for three years, and it was great. It was awesome working under Tony and and doing that. We ended up being beating Harvard in 85 in the Harvard-Yale race, or Yale-Harvard race. If you're coaching at Yale, it's Yale-Harvard. Um, and uh, But then I was like, ah, oh, man, I don't know if I want to be an assistant coach. Um so Indianapolis was doing the Pan American Games for '87. They said, "Will you come back and and do the you know do the whole thing? You know, will you you know build the course and be in charge of everything?" And so that's what I did. And when I uh, went back to Indy and um, did that, Purdue opened back up, and I went back to Purdue for a couple of years while I was doing that. So it's kind of crazy how it all worked out. But uh, yeah, so I got into it. I, I, I have like a million questions that were not, I was not predict. So, okay. So first off, hilarious that you're playing football. I assume you say five yards. I mean, were you a lineman? Were you a tight end? Like what, what did you play? Uh, outside linebacker. You were an outside linebacker. Yo, fierce, fierce outside linebacker. I love Forearm it. shivers, Alex, forearm shivers, man. <laughs> I love it. I, I played football up until freshman year of high school. I got injured. Same thing. I found rowing, but early, like when I was 14, not when I was 19, you know, in college. Um, this, this interesting thing where you, you got picked up by your coach driving. So who was the coach at the time? Like who was your head coach at that, at that moment? So at that time, uh, that, that freshman year, it was a guy named Steve Lawrence um, who had rode at Purdue as well and was helping out. Um, there was lots of different coaches, you know, club sport days. There's a lot of different hands helping out. You know, that guy was the one that was driving was picking me up. There was another guy named Kevin Thomas that actually taught me how to row Don Langford, who used to be on the U S rowing board as a chief referee. He was coaching there at the time as well. Uh, just crazy kind of connections. Um, my coach at, at Purdue, um, my last couple of years with John Bodine, who is a great coach as well. Yeah. Um, you know him? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, there's a lot of connections there, but uh, yeah, I got picked up. I think it was by Steve Lawrence actually. Yeah. So fast forward you're so I was born and raised in South Jersey. Philadelphia was my backyard. You're hanging out long hair, mustache, 77 in South Philly. I cannot imagine the people that you hung out with then. I mean, that's a big era in rowing was. in the 1977, like 70 in the late seventies of rowing. You said you did the Pan Am in 75, moved to Philly. Who are some of the guys that you rode with in 77, 78 down oh, the field? Man, man. Um, well, Mike Tatey. He was in the, yeah, he was in the pair without with Daryl Rugden Hill, who was a, a, a kick-ass cyclist at the time. Yeah, Daryl was unbelievable, a cyclist. Whoops. Um, and um, so those guys were in the straight pair. We had been um, in we were training in a four, straight four out of Vesper originally, and that boat was flying. And um uh, with this guy named Kirk Howard, we called him Captain Kirk. And, um, so he was my pair partner. And then, uh, Fred Kremlish was the coxswain. It was a, a coxswain at Rutgers. Um, but we also had, um, 
a couple other guys that were in the straight four with us. And one of the guys, um, we were working a lot of working construction during the day. Dave Crumpetish was another big guy at the time, you know, uh, anyway, we were working construction at the time. And one of the guys like fell in a hole and broke his leg. So our, our straight four went south, you know, and, um, and we were going to, I think we were one of the trials and gone to the worlds in the straight four, but then it was like, now what? And uh, so uh, Tady and Rigdon already won the trials in the pair. So there wasn't a whole lot of choices. So we hopped in the pair with and won the trials, you know? So um, it's kind of crazy time, but you know, like, oh, just like a lot of great guys, um, you know, that, that were rowing out of Vesper at the time. And, uh, um, you know, there's a litany, you know, I remember, you know, John B. Kelly, you know, back in the day, you know, is uh, older at that point, but he was kind of the sponsor of Vesper and, you know, it was really kind of keeping it afloat during some t tough times and stuff like that. Crazy. 76 to 84. I'm like, is I love rowing 76 to 84, especially in Philadelphia. I mean, mm -hmm. you were not a rower unless you were in Philly. DC had some, had some speed, but it was like Vesper boathouse row. It's the, it's the best. It's the greatest stories of all time. Like Stan Bergman taught me how oh. to row in South Jersey. Right. So Stand I, man. Just, Stand I, man. I used to sit and just, jaw on the floor listening to the stories that this guy would tell as i was on the beach patrol and it, i mean i'm telling you i just i grew up with the godfather of south jersey rowing He's, telling me stories about you guys about oh, you guys. he was amazing he still is i mean just some of the stories you know captain of the beach patrol you know just amazing guy um you know here's a great story so in 77 so brad lewis comes yep. comes to philly right yes. southern california sculler you know yep. Talk about long hair and a mustache. Here he comes in with his Volkswagen van, right? With a single on top. And you know, who's it? You know, Southern California cool. Like, who is this guy, right? And he drives in and and uh lunchtime, like in between practices, in between work and lunchtime, I'd go out in a single with him wow. and Gus and Gus Ignis, the hammer. Wow. Bartender, right? And uh he was a great coach. We call him the hammer. We go out in singles. I kind of could have kind of hang with Brad Lewis and he said, Kevin, you had a skull, you had a skull, you know, and I go, nah, nah, you know, you know, I don't know. I'd been sculling all year, but that, that year at Purdue coaching. And, um, uh, you know, it's like, we didn't have a launch. It was my first year of coaching. We didn't have a launch for the novice women. So I coached them from a single until March. Holy and, hell. Uh, finally, I couldn't like keep up with them anymore, you know, and I had to figure out a launch, but so I wrote a single and Brad and I wrote a single some, and he kept saying, okay, you got a skull, you got a skull, right? No, no, no. And then fast forward. This is a great story. Fast forward. I, I was not, I did not win the trials in the pair. That was uh, John Stropbeck. Yeah. I uh, can't remember the other guy, but uh, Stropbeck was one of them. And um, anyway, so I'm, I'm building the course at Lake Acetas because I picked up that kind of this, as a side like job type of thing to make money. So I was, I was helping building the course at Lake Acetas. So I was on the water at on the olympic final of the men's double and brad lewis and and uh, paul inquist win right in that fog if you look at that unbelievable race. out in lane six they win right so then they they win the race unbelievable race i'm on the water in a, in a like a repair boat they he's in lane six so they come around they go right by me because they're going go back and go the last 250 or so in front of the stands right and i'm going like man brad way to go gold medal man awesome man and he goes thanks kevin See, I told you you should have kept sculling. <laughs> oh, <my>. oh, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
there's yeah. stories after story after story, Alex. I don't like that. It's uh, these are the things that I, I, I what what I appreciate about these podcasts and these interviews is that this is a side of you that I never knew that I don't think a lot of people knew about you, right? They just see you coach UVA. Uh, all right, so you did the pair with I have. That is the only boat in the world I have never rowed in. How horrible is that boat? You didn't miss anything, man. It's like, it's so heavy. It's so heavy. That's why you call it the floating leg press. It's, um, yeah, it's, it was really heavy. Should, we bring and, it uh, back? should, should the IRA, men's IRA final have a pair with? <laughs> I mean, why not, right? Why not? Do you remember, I don't know if you remember, but when Vic Michelson was, if you heard stories about this, was the coach at Brown, the yeah, first coach know, at yeah. Brown. They had like six or eight pair whiffs. And they used to, that's what he used for like seat racing. I don't know where he got all the coxswains, right? But so they'd go out in like six or eight pair with, so he didn't have to worry about steering on the seacock and they would go at each other and switch people. So yeah, pair with, crazy. Um, I got sick. Was it it an empocker or a pocock that you were rowing for a pair with? We were rowing um, a stimply. A stimply? A wood stimply with carlish oars. Whoa. Yeah. So here's a great story. So the Dreisiecker brothers had just invented the fiberglass ore shaft, right? The yes. fiberglass ores. They came down to Philly from Vermont. They had two, two of them. That's it. They gave it to us and they said, well, you guys try these. And we went out and the rate came up really because they were like literally half the weight, yeah. half the weight of Carlish. We go out, the rate came up really well, easy, but we couldn't set the boat up because there was no weight to them. Yeah. Right. You know, and um, so we said no. Otherwise, we'd have been the first crew to use uh, C2 or oars. Yeah. It's just you are you are so connected to this <laughs> industry. It's nuts. I love it. I'm like, I'm, I'm doing a diagram. I'm like, where else you've been? Oh, it's crazy. Right, so I want to I want to like move with this. OK, so Tony, I rode for Greg Meyer at GW. OK. Yep. So in my backyard was Tony Johnson. And now this was at the tail end of his career. So he had probably three decent years when I was around, two, and then he kind of started leaving. Now you had Tony at his prime. You had Tony Johnson, early 80s, Yale. What was it like coaching under his tutelage in the early 80s at Yale? Well, first of all, Tony's just a fantastic person, right? And just like, you can't get any better. And I learned so much from him just on how to handle yourself in stressful situations, for example. And uh, so he was just like cool, calm and collected, you know, drove his crews very hard, obviously. Um, but he just was the epitome of just um, gentlemanness, I guess you would say, you know, he's just a, a gentleman and, and treated everybody with respect. And um, didn't mean he didn't push him, right? He pushed him hard and he challenged them hard. But uh, just, I learned so much from him on how to handle myself as a coach with people. And um, my three years there were valuable. I, I, we used to talk all the time, you know, because he came to Georgetown the year after I came to Virginia. And yeah, so, so, 80, so, so it would have been 80, he, it would have been 80, 89, 90, 89, 90, he came yeah. to Georgetown. And um, so we were pretty close then. His daughter, Amy, wrote for me. Um, yep. Yeah. And so it was really, really cool to have that relationship. And um, so when I came to, to Yale, my first year, my son turned one, and his kids were a little older than 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 my son and daughter, and so they invited us over for like, hey, come over over to our house for a first birthday party for my son Nick, 
Yeah, it was just that kind of stuff, you know. And you know, they they made a cake, you know, and and that's the that's the epitome of the Johnson family, Tony and Beth, you know. And they made this cake, you know, and we were holding my son back, and then we sang Happy Birthday, and we let him go, and he face planted in the chocolate cake, you know. I mean, it just I'll always remember that. And um, they were just a great family, and I'll always remember um, him him actually, re, you know, taking a chance on you know Hayseed from Indiana um, to to come to Yale to coach. He took a chance on me, and um, uh, he coached me in uh, 75 at the national team camp. So I'd gone to Yale for three weeks before we went to Dartmouth for the national team camp. Yeah. And um, so uh, he was a big part of that. And um, here's a, a side story that you'll appreciate. Rosenberg was a head coach, right? They're yeah, sitting around a table. So we had, I thought, oh, I got invited to the team camp. You know, Rosenberg said, I need an ergometer score for you if you want to come to the camp. And I go, we don't have an ergometer. He says, okay, well, run 10 miles and do power cleans with 75% of your body weight. Yes. So I ran 10 miles, you know, I went under 60 minutes. And I cleaned it like 43 times or whatever. And he said, okay, you can come. Anyway, <laughs> so I come and I think it's a big deal, right? Well, there's 65 guys there. <laughs> like we'd have like eight eights across and we go three miles. And it was like crazy. So they're going to cut down to 32 from 65. I think I'm gone, right? I'm, I'm roll like crap, you know, but I, you know, whatever. They hadn't done an erg test or anything. So we're sitting around a table. They're sitting around a table of coaches, and they're going like, "Okay, well, yeah, get rid of this Purdue guy." And and one again, either Tony or Al Rosenberg said, "No, no, we're going to keep him." They're, everybody else is going, "What? Are you crazy?" He said he rose like crap. And and one of the guy, one of the coaches says, "Yes, he rose like crap, but he rose the same crap at the end of practice as the beginning." So if we can if we can figure out how to Tony told me this story later. If we can t- t- teach him how to row. We might have something there. Um, but then you know we did an erg test and I did pretty well, and then they kept me. But after that too so anyway it's just there's a lot of intertwined stories there tony's a great guy I, I so al rosenberg i rode in a boat that was dedicated to him um at potomac so i rode potomac boat club from 2009 to 2016 and we had the al rosenberg it was my first boat there it was a it was a philippi eight and yeah. i had known stories of him but it wasn't until i was in that boat and hearing more about him that i realized like how kooky of a guy he was, how passionate of rowing he was. And the fact that he made you go run 10 miles and do power cleans just to make the team is so, it's a perfect <laughs> emblem of what he is. Like that was him. I was love crazy. that. Yeah, crazy. He was now like he did, Zen of rowing, I think. Yeah. So like, okay, so, all right. So Yale, and then you had, you're like, you know what, you're going to go, I'm just going to fast forward to UVA. Um, you're moving into UVA in the, in um you said it was 89, 90, 91 is when you're all uh, summer of 88. Summer of 88. So I worked for U.S. Rowing for the Olympic year of uh, 88. Uh, okay. After I went, after I left Purdue, I worked there for one year. And uh, then I wanted to get back into coaching. I hated, you know, working in the office type of thing. So I, that Virginia was available and we took a look at it and said, okay, great school, great body of water. If we can stick this out, we can make something, you know, and so time you had a family. So you're, you're, you're raising some children. Yeah, was, they were six and five when we moved. So they grew up, basically grew up here. It's uh, you know how hard it was. And I, I, I don't have to remind you, but like, it's hard to be a professional crew coach, right? There's not a lot of revenue. There's not a lot of opportunities. You know, you spent half your career fixing houses and building <laughs> pole barns in people's houses. Um, was that a hard sell for for your family to say, Hey, we're going to move all the way to UVA. We're going to just change lives. Yeah. So not for the five and six year old kids, right? They were, <laughs> they, were in, they were in kindergarten and first yeah. grade. So that was easy. My wife was a little different. Um, but once she saw it, 
and saw the community and you know what what it was like here and just you know it sold her on a great place to raise a family that was that sold her yeah. um and and then you know once she got here and started making friends then that's why i've been here this long uh because she kind of dug in her heels and said this is a great place uh and good friends and good place to raise a family so um yeah so it was it was once she saw it and saw what the possibilities were um it was a pretty easy sell then yeah now over that span you know i'm, I'm pulling i'm not pulling this out of my ass i actually have a list you, a thousand career wins two-time crca national coach of the year nine-time national champion like when i so when i started rowing in 2000 uva women you guys were pretty good right there's like the story of it building but like 04 to 08 it's like you guys were awesome uva women were awesome and a lot of the athletes that i had rode with wanted to go for your program now clearly it took you a while to build that but i mean you have one of the most successful careers in coaching in anybody in the country you made the uh, Hall of Fame in 2017, correct? Right? I think so, yeah. Um, what, for every coach out there listening, what's your secret, man? What do you do? Give, like, how, how, how does that happen? How does that happen over 26 years? 33 years. Uh, yeah, so 44 years of college coaching, which I, I look at that, like, who's that guy? You know, anyway, I'm not that old, am I? Um, but um, so when I first got here, and I think this is part of this to answer your question, we had a one bay boathouse that was termite infested and kudzu covered. If you know what kudzu is, um, it's an invasive plant that's like grows 18 inches a day and chokes everything off, right? It's crazy. So, and a port john in the woods and no water and no electricity. Wow. Nothing. Dirt floor in the boathouse. That's what we started with. And just getting a bunch of kids to like believe in what was possible was the first step. So, mm-hmm. working them hard, you know, you know really, really like taking the men in the women's program and kind of equalizing them, which back in those days was not the case. It was like the men had the good stuff, the women had the bad stuff. And I said, nope, not anymore. You know, so we kind of equalized everything. And um, I was in charge of the whole program, but I was coaching the men at the time. Um, and then, you know, like just getting them excited about stuff, you know, little things like putting asphalt in the boathouse floor, getting electricity and water, you know, so you didn't have to take the Cox boxes home at night and a 10 gallon jug and put it in a tree stand, you know, things like that, just, you know, working the, the magic to try to get that stuff happen. And then, then say, okay, yeah, we're going to sell some old equipment, get a loan and get some new stuff and some used stuff, you know? And, and so it's, everybody's got some decent stuff, you know, and rebuild the dock, you know, Mark Schofer, for example, who's a boatman at Brown that passed away a couple of years ago. Yeah. He was there, right. He was awesome. He helped me so much. And we rebuilt a lot of stuff. We painted the boathouse. We did all sorts of crazy stuff and get kids excited about what they were doing. And we won, did some really good jobs at the Dad Vale. And um, so people then kind of built on itself, you know? I remember the first year, the first fall, we went to the Princeton Chase with the guys. We finished second, second, right? People were going like, what the heck's going on? Then the kids are going like, whoa, like this is for real, we can do this. And I think it was just one of those things where they just needed somebody to believe in them and to believe that that hard work made a difference. And it just kind of started uh, working on itself. And so then we kind of went along and then there was a guy that came into, into town that moved here that I'd met in the summer. And he says, it's a good place to retire. And I go, absolutely. If you want to row a single. Yeah. So this guy comes in, Tom Allen, and he wrote a pen, yep. graduated from pen in, 20, in 58. Mm-hmm. And he comes in and, you know, like we're going along, like a t- 
coach him in the single a little bit. We're hanging the boats on, on, on racks outside. The next day he comes up to me and hands me a check for a hundred thousand dollars. Come on. And he goes, I could, I could give this to Penn and it would be like, re- they really love me for it. Or I could give it to you and you could make some, something happen. And so I go, okay. And we, Joel Furtek was my assistant at the time. And he put this little D, uh, v, not DVD, VHS in those days okay. with this like CAD stuff, like what the a new boathouse would look like. We raised $75,000 in three weeks and we built a pole barn and got some bathrooms and did all this stuff and five bay pole barn. We did it all for 175 driveway, parking lot, path down to the water. Then people got really excited. Um, Tom's gift just set us apart. And um, then university title nine started really rearing its head again. University said, well, we got to do something. Well, rowing's convenient, already has a team, already has a boathouse, already has water. So they started talking to me about it. And the next thing I knew we were a varsity sport in the fall of 95. And then we like took off. And so, uh, so we hit the track running, you know, we had a good club program. And then, then we kind of hit the timing of it was good. So we had some success that first year of varsity status. And then the first NCAA championship, we were fourth and in our second year of existence, really. And so people started looking. And I think that's the time that you're talking about where people are going like, wow, if we want to look outside the, the norm, this would be a good place to look. And so, so they started like coming. And so we, we finished tied for first and so second place because Brown was got the tiebreaker in 99. We finished another couple of times. We finished second. And finally, we were able to pull off the win in 2010. So yeah, I wrote down a list, and, and this is what I'm going to convey to all the young coaches out there. You make the athletes believe, you equalize the team in the sport, you get them excited, you get some good equipment to help them. It snowballs, victories breed success, and you build the momentum. And it's just like so much of what you just said is culture-driven, right? You made young 19, 20-year-olds who, who need something to believe in, believe in something, and, you know, so many folks, I'm trying to build a business, okay? And it takes, we have not seen the success that I want in my mind. And, and I look at you and like, you were an overnight success, air quotes. You were doing it from late 80s and didn't really see your success, big success until early 2000s or even beyond. So coaches need to realize and remember that it takes time, you know, but in that time you coached, 19 world championship athletes you coached what eight nine olympians in that time um and all that it sounds like you built the culture i mean is that a fair simplified version of saying you built a culture yeah i don't know if i built the culture i just i didn't have an idea of what like what that meant i just like went to work every day like this is what we're going to do and you know just go to work every day and i don't know i'm not sure i'm a visionary more than like just like we're going to go to work, you know, well, you're, you're a hayseed. You're a, you're a, <laughs> yeah, so, grinds. you just grind it out. You just grind, do it. Yeah, grind it out. Yeah. Grind it out. And um, it was interesting because about 10 or 12 years ago, us rowing, I'd done a lot of technical clinics and physiology clinics and stuff like that, but I'd never done anything like this. They asked me, I said, will you speak on creating a culture of success? And I go, uh, okay. And then I go, uh Oh, right. What am I going to talk about? And so what I did is I sent an email out to all of our alumni, all of our parents, ex-parents, stuff like that, about 700 people. I sent. I said, I got to give this talk. What do you guys think really helped us 
be successful. You tell me what, what it was, right? I didn't have like our basketball coach or Tony Bennett has his five pillars, you know, and this kind of stuff. I didn't have it listed. I didn't have it on the wall of the boathouse. I didn't have any list, right? I just went to work. And so I got this feedback and it just, so I have this, these 10 things that I, that they thought were the most important. And I give talks about that to our graduate school of business and, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, a couple of times a year, but it's like the number one thing was care. You mm. care about the people you're in charge of, right? You really care. You work hard. You, you have passion. Um, you have balance. You have fun. Um, you, you have, you know, you're humble about what you have, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the Jack Clark quote from the, the Cal rugby coach is entitled to nothing, grateful for everything, you know? And so you're not entitled to anything, but what you do have, you've worked for it really hard and you're grateful for it. And so we try to just embed that in the, in the team and what we're doing. And what you said before, Alex, is really important. You said like back in the day, you, you got 19 and 20 year olds to believe in something that was valuable. It's still the same. Still the same. It's still the same today. It's exactly what these kids need. They need something to sink their teeth into that's substantive. And that is what, that's what matters. So I was also thinking, and this is, this is really to help call it like coaches is you grew up and were coaching in an era with some of the best coaches to ever be in our sport. Yeah. Mike Tatey. I mean, you rode with a guy, Brad yeah. Allen Lewis, yeah. amazing rower. He was also a great coach, right? Yeah. So in your time at UVA, did you ever call on those guys and say, Hey, I need some help. Did you lean on your friendships and your relationships to help grow UVA? Oh, sure. Sure. Um, you know, different people. Um, so Tony Johnson was a big, big person of that. We would just call each other probably back in the day, once every couple of weeks about that kind of stuff. Um, uh, you know, I've talked to Tom Terhar, you know, a, a few times, you know, um, talked, you know, just like in person to, to Mike Tatey, you know, people like that. Um, but the situation here was so unique, Alex, that it was like, there wasn't a cookbook for it. You know, it was like, you just have to, you just got to figure stuff out as you go a lot of times. And so a lot of that was not necessarily rowing coaches more than just people that I knew that had built things, you know, like, like, for example, when you build a house, you know, that I'd done several times or a boathouse or whatever you built, I built like several boathouses in my career. It's like the foundation is so important, yeah. you know, and the foundation is hard work, great attitudes, and you can go from there. And so, Yes, a lot of coaches. Uh, Al Rosenberg was somebody that I that I called on, uh, for sure. Um, and there's just a but Tony Johnson, I would say, was probably the main person that I that I leaned on because I because he was the guy that, um, that that brought me to Yale and I really opened my eyes to what was possible for me as a coach. And um, so I always kind of went back to him and asked advice. Then I would also ask advice of the people that I was kind of kind of peers with, like. Andy Teitelbaum, for example, you know, like we kind of were started this thing together as varsity sports and Mark Rothstein and to kind of help each other and things like that. So there's a lot of people like that, too, that uh, over the years that were in the trenches at the same time, kind of at the same level, you know, that that we kind of leaned on and, and try to help each other. That's beautiful. Um, I want to I love the building the house thing, the foundation. It's today's youth. I say youth. I'm 35, but I think that I see a lot of young people, people. Um, think that it just happens. It happens like, oh, I should win the first year. I should be successful the first year. And I know you know that. Like, I know that you've met people like that. Yeah. Um, I want to. I want to change topics because, like, we we have a time commitment for this, so we try to keep things fairly close. 
to 45 minutes, but you've been coaching women 30 plus years. You've been coaching crew 40 plus years. Mm-hmm. Rowing has, the, the, the culture around rowing, the culture of America has changed dramatically. Yeah. Are you optimistic about the future of rowing with us? Are you, are you optimistic about where we're heading with equality and diversity in the sport? Or do you think that we're stuck in the mud right now? hopeful okay the, the one thing somebody was asking me the other day so as long as i've been doing this has there been a change in america's youth so to speak mm-hmm. yes there has yes. okay there has uh the coping skills are not great they're not great the, the the ability to cope uh in in tough situations is not great so i take very seriously um my job to empower young women to be able to to cope to take on challenges that then will empower them to take on the world when they get out of here. And so that's a big part of the job, I think. Um, The diversity component is something that needs a lot of help. Um, So for me, you know, from this summer and all the things that happened, I have a fairly diverse team. Um, I have four people of color on my team. And and for for this sport, that's that's a pretty good percentage. Uh, But I want more. I want more diversity. And so so some of my alumni were challenging me this summer. Said, Kevin, we need more diversity on our team, the alums, you know. And I said, Good, yes, we do. Help me. How do we help you? Give me more options. How do you give me more options? Build these programs in the in the cities that will expose this sport to others that have not been exposed to people of color and, and disadvantaged people and people that have not been exposed to this sport very much. And a woman that I know fairly well, Amanda Krauss, who's now the CEO of U.S. Rowing, look what she did with Row New York. Oh. Holy moly. Incredible. Those kind of things can happen. And when we do that, then we give coaches like myself, you know, out there that we give more choices for us to recruit people that will allow our teams to become more diverse. And that's really, really important because there's a lot of people out there that can do really, really well. The kids in our team, the, the, um, of color are, are fantastic, you know, rowers. They're doing, yeah. they're doing really, really well. And I'm really happy for them and happy for the experience for the other kids on our team uh, to see that and experience that and see what they've done, you know, and, and to encourage them to, to keep pushing this initiative about creating opportunities so that we have more choices and they have more choices. I love the choices thing. That's that's clever. Uh, it's another way to look at it. Um, there was a time I when I started coaching was two thousand and nine. Dan Garbett, I think you know the guy. I think you know yeah. who Dan Garbett is. So I rode with him um, on the lifeguard beach patrol, and I called him up and I said, "Dan, I'm about to coach girls, high school girls. Can you give me some ideas on what to do?" And he says, "Don't treat them like high school girls. Treat them like athletes. Treat them like tough athletes. Don't coach them." like you think they need to be coached. Coach them like you would coach boys. It's all about equality, right? Mm-hmm. Then I meet Mike Wallen. He's part of the commission. He's in our PRL. We've talked about this earlier before camera. And I said, hey, what's your secret sauce? And he says, I treat them like a bunch of dudes. I treat them like they're equals. Like I'm, tra- I'm training them hard. I don't sugarcoat things and, and we, work, we have a good collaboration. You remind me of that. You remind me of you're going to coach these athletes like they're athletes. Forget about their girls, their boys. It's equal. And the same thing goes for diversity in the sport. We can't, we treat them, we treat everybody equal. And you're going to have more choices. You're going to have better students, better athletes. 
uh, and it perpetuates. And it was the best advice I had ever gotten in coaching. Coach them like you would coach anybody. Don't, yep. don't be different. Yep. That, I don't know if that makes sense to you or if that resonates with you or not. It does. And so this is one thing that, that from uh, all the unrest from this summer and, you know, I was talking to, um, the, you know, a couple of the black kids on my team and I said, like, have, have I ever done any? No, 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 you haven't. I, I said, I try to treat everybody the same. And they're going like, yeah, you do. But guess what, Kevin? We're not the same. We're black. Huh? So you need wow. to know that. You need to know that we're black. I go, I know you're black. No, no, you need to know that, that, that we're black, that we are different in that way, okay? And you, the experiences we have have been different. And I go, oh my gosh, no, I haven't treated you any differently, but I need to know that you're different. Wow. You experience different things. And it really opened my eyes, you know? And another thing about that, how, how you coach people, I, when I first started coaching women, uh, the, the women that I started coaching that had been club athletes that, the last year of club status, I switched over to, to women here at Virginia in anticipation to be in varsity sport the next year. So I was coaching them for about a month because they'd see me coaching the guys. They were seniors, you know, and they come up to me and they go, hey, Kevin, can we talk to you? Yeah, yeah. I said, look, you can coach us. We've seen you coaching the guys. Coach us exactly the same, which you've been doing, but there's one thing that we want you to do differently. And I go, sure, what's that? We need more notice. And I go, more notice? They go, yeah, you just come down. And the guys are standing around and you just put the workout on the board and the lineups on the board and the guy goes, yep. Okay. Coach. And they walk in there. They're, they're good. We want to know what's happening before that. Give us like a few days notice. And I said, that's it. And they said, you can kick the crap out of us. Right. All we need to know is a little notice. That was it. That's easy for you to do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wow. Kevin, you've been doing this 40 plus years. I, uh, you're, you gotta be in your, what 60s i assume early 60s 67 Six, so okay so you're past the time to retire you don't have to tell me but you know how many more years you got left dude how many more years you got left at uva i don't know i don't know <laughs> you, got, I really you feel I mean, good though right like you feel gladstone good. gladstone's gonna turn like 79 or 80 right I um <laughs> so i i know I, I can pretty much guarantee i won't go that long um but, but I, I think I got a few more years. I mean, I, I still enjoy it. Um, COVID has been tough for everybody. Yeah. Athletes, people in general, coaches, it's been really hard. But, you know, I, I see this light at the end of the tunnel. I see people kind of like, you know, having a, this resilience that's just amazing. And it's inspiring, the resilience they have. Um, and they just keep coming to practice, keep banging along. And it's just really inspiring. So as long as I'm inspired myself, then I feel like I can inspire them. My father is 68. He works with me here in Baltimore in the shop. And we started the company eight years ago. Uh, three years in, he said, hey, I want to help you out. I just I want to be a part of this. And he is inspired every day. And the guy's 68 years old. He's outlived his father. He's outlived everybody else in, in every other previous Del Sordo in the world. Uh, and he's crushing it. And it's that word exactly, inspired that really keeps them going. And that makes you feel good to know that, hey, you're still inspired and rowing. Yeah, and it, it's, it goes both ways, Alex. You know this. It's like sometimes, some days I inspire and some days I'm inspired, you know? And we kind of trade off, you know? And we kind of share it, you know? Because sometimes the kids come in, they're fired up. And sometimes they're zombies and I'm fired up and we kind of feed off each other, you know? And Love so it. if somebody, if one person smiles, 
it, you know, the endorphins take off, right? So I tell people to smile a lot, you know, so smile, enjoy it, you know, smell the roses. And so today, beautiful morning at practice this morning, we turned around, I said, guys, take a few seconds, look at this sunrise, enjoy this 45 degrees in February in the morning, yeah. enjoy it, you know, there's going to be a balloon coming over here any, any second, you know, like enjoy this and smell the roses, be, be grateful, be grateful. So we're going to, we're going to end with this. There's a, here's a, a chance for you to give one last message to either rowers or young coaches out there that want a career in rowing. What do you want to say to those folks that are in their twenties that want to make a career, career out of it? Be persistent, be persistent. Don't give up. Don't ever, ever, never give up because it's, it, it can be tough sometimes to break in, you know, and they're like, okay, what am I going to do? Okay. Be a volunteer. All right. You know, be a barista while I'm being a volunteer, you know, whatever to break in, to get into coaching and learn from the best, go to a, a good program and be a volunteer and, and learn from people that can inspire you and help you along the way. And if you do a good job there, then you got a ticket because there's an opening that person's going to help you get that next job. Best advice I ever get is like, if you want that next job, take care of this job really, really well. Like take it like it's the only thing you got and then everything else will happen. So just stay persistent, stay inspired, be passionate and um, things will start falling your way. Now you heard it from the man, Kevin Sauer. Everyone tuning in, this is episode three, season three of Rower's Choice Podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks for watching.